Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. I feel like I shouldn't even say this on this podcast. It's just like, and I'm not, this is, I'm talking mostly about doc film, but like when you get into narrative film, there's like, there's snakes everywhere you know and you you get in, you, like it's it's very very strange to have to deal with like the slipperiness of the business side like you put a bit of your soul into this stuff and to have it shopped around i mean of course there would be older filmmakers like listening to my spiel about this thinking how naive i am but you know like like maybe it's nice to be naive Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 83. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. So normally, this is the part of the show where I come up with some semi-smart, semi-self-deprecating opening for the week's topic of the show. We go to break, and then I come back and give my segment on the topic. We take another break, and then we go to our shared conversation with the doc industry guest, who will expand more upon the topic. But that will not be the case this week. There are a few different reasons for that. One being that there there really is no way I could successfully pull off another one of these top five ways to do some sort of thing in doc film segment. And then follow that up with the kind of conversation that I would have with our doc industry guest, doc filmmaker Timothy George Kelly. You'll see what I mean shortly. The other reason being that it would almost feel disingenuous of me not to give the full time of the show to my conversation with Timothy. I can honestly say that I haven't had this candid a conversation on doc filmmaking or journalism since last summer when we spoke with war journalist Nate Thayer. Though now that I say that, it is worth noting that we did have a pretty good and real conversation with filmmaker Tony Ziera a few episodes back. But this one, well, it really sets a new bar in shall we say, pure, raw honesty. Let's just leave it at that. Some of you are really going to dig this conversation. Others are going to be maybe turned off by it. Some of you will find Timothy a breath of fresh air. Others might find him an insufferable artist. He has some polarizing, dare I say, controversial thoughts about documentary and the film industry as a whole. And he certainly has a shall we say, way with words. If profanity is not your thing, this may not be the episode for you. The conversation, actually, it even got off to a rough start. I'm not sure if you'll be able to pick that up on the edit or not, since we we lost connection a few times early on and, and had to switch over to the phone instead of Skype. But I have to say, if you do stick with this show, there is a ton to be gleaned. And yes, I said gleaned. This word will make more sense later on in the show. There is much to be gathered from my conversation with Timothy George Kelly. It was one that kept me on my toes. I think, I hope, that you'll be as engaged as I was with it. 
He has much to say on the state of documentary, though he might even disagree with me saying this. I do hope you enjoy the conversation even half as much as I did. Oh, one quick note before I go. As many of you know, we here at TDL rarely take a week off. It's probably only happened, I don't know, twice in over two years of doing the show. However, we will be taking a break to attend Podcast Movement 2018 in Philadelphia next week. We'll also be giving a TDL workshop that week, but more on that later. So there will be no show next week. Instead, we'll return on Friday, August 3rd, which also just so happens to be Steph's birthday. Okay, my profanity-laden and totally enlightening conversation with Timothy George Kelly coming up next on The Documentary Life. I've been mentioning over the course of the last few episodes that we'll be giving an evening TDL workshop in Philadelphia. Well, this is your last chance to be a part of that workshop since it's coming up next week, Wednesday, July 25th. The workshop will be a mini version of our The Documentary Life workshop, which includes the filmmaker's identity and fundamental values, personal and professional finances, lifestyle habits and conscious living, building a support network and the importance of community, organization and planning elements of both doc film and leading a doc life. We will be sharing what we've learned from over 80 episodes of the podcast and our combined 25 plus years of working in the film industry. After the presentation, we'll be holding a 20-minute Q&A session. We look forward to getting to know our doc life or family a little better and connecting face-to-face. For more information, simply go to thedocumentaryacademy.com slash join us or head to the show notes for this episode. We'd love to see you there, so book your ticket today. Timothy George Kelly is a filmmaker and visual artist who has shown work across Europe, Asia, and North America. His most recent film, Brexitania, has been taking the film festival world a bit by storm. He's played, just to name a few, DocuFest in Munich, Sheffield DocFest, Copenhagen Docs, as well as, most recently, Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. And, of course, we had our, uh, fairly recently, we had our two-part special on the film festival through the eyes, as told through the eyes of MDFF. And so we are certainly happy to have uh, Timothy George Kelly with us today on The Documentary Life, not only speaking about his film, Brexitania, but really about, yeah, how Timothy leads his documentary life as well. Timothy, welcome to The Documentary Life. Uh, thanks, Timothy, you describe yourself, or, or at least I have seen in a number of pages here in, in, in uh, different bio pages, as a filmmaker and as an artist. And I know that photography, painting, installation, video, and performance, that's all lumped into a bit what you do as, as an artist. But it is interesting to me that you would separate the two, filmmaker and artist. What is the reason for that differentiation? I want to swear on the podcast. I'm sorry, could you say that again? I love swear on this podcast. Oh, you know what? You're you're breaking up a bit now for the first time. All right, are you there, Timothy? Do we have you? 
Hey. Are you with me, Timothy? Okay, we have uh, we have returned here on the documentary life. We were briefly cut off via Skype, so I've I've actually phoned Timothy back directly. So you'll notice a slight difference in audio quality. Um, I'll try and repeat the question here, Timothy. In in researching a bit of your of your background and, and your bio, obviously photography, painting, installation, video performance. This is all a part of your background, according to the bios that I have come across. Now in it. However, what I have seen is it, there seems to be a bit of a differentiation, at least in your biographies, between filmmaker and artist. Is that intentional, or or what's that about? Um. Okay. So my question before the Skype cut out before was, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? <laughs> yes, you can absolutely. Okay. So I don't. So I mean, it's interesting that the question, if if <laughs> for anyone. <laughs> Basically, what happens is maybe you write a biography one day. Totally. Seven years ago. That's <laughs> on like a tiny blog somewhere when you're a 24-year-old. <laughs> and then, and then some, some probably very, very unpaid person at a film festival who is probably 22 years old also maybe finds this on the internet yeah. and then writes this as your actual biography. <laughs> so... And then, and then the copy and pasting of that biography kind of just chases you and follows you everywhere. I'm <laughs> not, right. I'm not a hundred percent sure on any, like, I guess, I guess I, get, I have a very, I have an official website that doesn't give much information about who I am. And then yeah. I probably have like, I probably have like a Tumblr hidden somewhere. Yeah. With the Tumblr page um, is great. Maybe, I loved it. <laughs> okay. Okay. That maybe that maybe uses this kind of thing. Yeah. I don't, but the separation between art and film is not, um, it's because, Capitalism supposes that you have to dis- distinct, distinctly make different roles uh, about things. And right. I, I'm first and foremost a filmmaker, yeah. but I do other stuff in terms of my artistic practice, which I also, unfortunately, filmmaking now takes all my time. Mm-hmm. I wish I could paint pictures all day, but mm. this, um, but also probably I'm probably a better filmmaker than I am a painter, mm. so maybe that's that's why that's happening. But um, there is no, I don't really consider there to be a separation in terms of roles or identities. It's just, I think that's a, a um, an insecure bio written by like a 25 year old, <laughs> which I'm very much not a 25 year old anymore that just got copied and pasted is obviously you, you make a film and if it gets accepted into the industry or the festival system in some way, shape or form, people start needing to accumulate data about you right. in, their, in their printouts and their websites. So that's, that's, that's why you had that question, but it's just, I don't really want to answer it. I just want to like warn people that like you should be a little bit, um, like watch out what you watch out oh you know? no for sure <laughs> yeah, I, mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean i i didn't write anything really ridiculous there but yeah um, yeah yeah well no honestly yeah. as you're saying this i'm just thinking back and i'm like oh god I, i'm glad none of my old geo cities websites are still existing out there because i'm yeah, sure <laughs> i'm sure there's a bit of uh yeah crackerhead narrative out there about me as well i i, I totally get what you're saying um we're just gonna move on yeah. then <laughs> 
Okay, good. You, so you're an Australian filmmaker currently based in the UK. However, you did move to Montreal in 2008 and spent a, a bit of time there. Um, and in fact, mm-hmm. you curated a seven-part short doc series called Big Small. Was this mm-hmm. was this your first entrance really into the world of documentary? And uh, and if so, how did how did that go for you? It wasn't it wasn't the entry into it. I mean, I think I, I'd done something very very similar in a much more rough style mm. in Melbourne right after I left film school. And it wasn't, I mean, none, all of that, that was completely like unpaid and me just doing things on my own back, which right. is pretty much how the majority of my filmmaking life for the stuff I really care about has been yeah. until a very recent point now where things are starting to um position themselves in which I can actually like economically see my life being okay whilst doing this. But that, that series grew, that series was presented under a branding with a festival called pop Montreal, which is basically one of the, the better known um, independent like music festivals. I love pop Montreal. It's amazing. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And then this, kind of just actually having the it being curated by these guys and it having the branding of that mm. that made me a tiny bit more official in some way shape or form mm. but this is just this is also like i think it was like 22 or 23 at this point and um that some one or two of those films are still pretty good i think but it's also that part of my life is also just the the actual like real life film school stuff yeah where right. I, I don't actually think you learn to do so much at school. I think what you learn is what you do after. If you decide to not give up, if you're like someone that actually <laughs> just perpetually works at your craft, you do inevitably end up getting better at it. And that series was just, I guess, a part of a, a very, probably an important part of that in regards to my life in Montreal, because it yeah. gave me some kind of creative identity there in the, um, in the creative communities and the music scene and all of this. And that, but then also I was like developing an aesthetic developing, like, I think I make films about humans and I, I have to engage with the the space between the lens and them and trying to work that out at that point. Yeah. And after the, I don't even know what you're, no, no, it's great. It's great. It gives us some context because, you know, after the big, small series, you directed your first longer form piece and it was a film called a city as an Island, a film about the, yeah. the influence of Anglo music, if you will, in, in, in a predominantly Franco city, of course, of Montreal, I'm assuming the mm-hmm. pop Montreal connections, you being immersed in the music world there, uh, doing the big, small series. I'm assuming that this kind of led you to a city as an Island. How did the film, so so maybe you can help me understand a little bit better how the film came to be, and then included in that, I'd love to hear what were some of the bigger surprises and challenges in some, kind of making that transition to longer form? Um, so, I mean, there's an interesting thing, I think, that I, I have, so right now in my life, I am very much like, in some way, shape or form have very much been like opened into the industry now. And I am now, I now have conversations with gatekeepers and certain people that were previously completely inaccessible and were actually completely elusive and abstract to me (laughs) as a young filmmaker trying to actually 
make a life out of doing this. Right. What I think is a really unfortunate thing that has come of this moment in my life when I talk to people that are in the industry and I also talk to other people that are filmmakers and then you're also engaging with like the cultural conversations you have about your films mm. is there's this idea that you're not allowed to talk about how you fucked up. <laughs> and right. it really, really, it, I find it, I find it very frustrating. I find it very untruthful. Yeah, absolutely. Is. And I, I, I engage with, producers, peer like filmmakers and all these other people that are like, that actually are legitimately like, if you think your work is a failure that you shouldn't actually say this. And I think that's completely wrong. Some people say, cause it could be disrespective, disrespective to like your audience. Cause there's audiences that like a city is an Island. Mm. There's people that legitimately think that this is like something beautiful and great and very important for them. Mm -hmm. But I really, really, really hate that film. Wow. Um, but the thing is, I hate that film for a multitude of reasons. Well, let's get into that because did you hate the process? Did you hate the, the material? The process did you hate was the subjects the you were Look, working with? What was it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, 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 no. So the first thing I will, I will set some kind of context and also like I want, I mean, no one from the film will probably end up listening to this podcast, but like <laughs> I don't really, I don't, I don't dislike anyone I made the film about at all. Right. The thing is also I have, I'm interested in feature length and long form cinema, right. like documentaries and cinema that give you the amount of time to actually take in a true narrative and yeah. understand like a thematic framework and give a director time, which is like the most important, which is like the only thing that like films actually really require, yeah, like yeah. The, the time to actually like do something as opposed to just trying to do something very aesthetically or sonically experiential and great over like a three minute, like music video or something like mm -hmm. this. Like I, I want to be able to play with a format which allows people have to sit in a room and you have to do like, you, you have to think you go through things and it's like, it's a, it's a massive privilege to do this. Right. And I've always wanted to do longer form content. I was a guy in Montreal and I don't know if you know much about the economic situation in Montreal, but it's not the, the most hustling, bustling, like opportunity ridden city. Mm. Like everyone I knew was pretty poor. I was extremely poor, mm. but I decided, fuck it. I'll do this anyway. Mm. The issue is, is also it's, I didn't have, I, I was kind of ignorant in my, and I think it's what it's, I made a lot of classic mistakes that a lot of people make where maybe just the sheer motivation and the inspiring nature of just being young and dumb allows you to like take on projects which are massive. Yeah, right. That to be honest, most people don't end up finishing. And the thing is, I'm quite a stubborn person. <laughs> you and me both. Um and I've I do I do think I do think I have a problem in which I work too hard. Mm. Um, like I look, I'm completely jealous of people who know how to relax every day, you know, mm. like this is, this is something that I think is, is an enormous skill that should be celebrated and that should be taught to people. <laughs> um, but basically a city of an island took four years to make. It was pretty much solely only shot by myself mm -hmm. 
and most importantly as a failure for myself is I think it was a film which did in the end document a certain thing that hadn't been documented in documentary at the especially at the point I'd been making it a couple more films did come along in that period and then near after but like just talking about the Anglo scene there which is a very 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 specific thing but also to be honest the largest and most important music thing coming out of that that place mm. like there's there's bigger things with jazz fest and everything like this but jazz fest is corporate bullshit um godspeed but <laughs> well yeah well i mean God, godspeed and all of this is like this is what this this is what this scene is totally. and then how that how that grew that how that grew up into things such as like arcade fire and grimes and like mac demarco or whatever you want to talk about right, and right. whatever it, it, there's not so many like massive massive people coming out of it now but there's such a um Montreal's a perfect place to spend your 20s and to be a shithead musician who's learning, who learns by failing. Yeah. It's a very soft city, a forgiving city, and a great place to like, like go after that art form in your 20s. Yes. And in regards to my film, is my film didn't have a conceptual framework, and my film was producerless, and my, I had no guiding people for a very very long time on that film Mm. but i still really really wanted to finish it and what i ended up what i think ended up happening in terms of finishing that film which took four years and a lot of very very sad 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 days in front of sequences just being completely lost on final cut is i do think i ended up making quite a few um compromises i would say um genre-wise in terms of documentary cinema to make the film something that could actually be a completed picture. Right. Because I I wanted to make something that was a bit more ecstatic, a bit more exciting, a bit more experimental style of a music scene documentary. And then to finish the film, I ended up getting my friend Luke, Luke Nima on board as a writer. Mm. And Luke is a very, very good editor especially in regards to written word. And he really helped with the actual structuring of how that movie ended up being finished. Right. But it had to make compromises, which ended up turning it into something a bit more formulaic. But then again, it being formulaic in this, in this, in this fashion meant it got, it also somehow got onto CBC Canada. Yes. <laughs> so, right. but like, I never expected, I never wanted to make like a doc. I wanted to make like a much more interesting film yep. that like wouldn't get onto CBC. <laughs> like, like, which, <laughs> but I just made this and then it ended up happening in some way, shape or form. And then it's also this, it's like, I don't know, this thing. So how, so how Timothy, help me understand yeah. then in this, help me understand. And this is going back to what you originally started talking about. Help me understand. Now we're fast forwarding to your connections with the industry, with some of the gatekeepers. Help me understand your point, which was that, look, I actually can't have some of the honest conversations that I want to have with these people about mistakes that I made. Can you give us some example of this? In context um, with this film, I'm assuming. Look, I think the most one of them, one of this has been thrown into chaos a little bit, and I have very somewhat pretentious, but very, very what I feel are like important conversations with like a relationship to truth mm. that documentary makers have, mm. and it's also uniquely 
uniquely, if we're going to be authentic, that we're actually documentary makers and not. I have problems with people that say that they're saying they're making doc when they're making complete fiction. So there's, there's, I don't want to talk too much about these movies because they end up um, saying names of directors who Great. behind closed doors I have <laughs> huge problems with. But yeah. um, like, there is something that the, the documentary form is one of these. One of these is an art form where basically between the lens and whatever happens in, in front of that lens, that that is in some form always has to be truthful. Yeah. Yes, that person might be aware that the camera was there. Yes, that person might like be somewhat only in that, in that room because the director asked them to walk into that room. Mm. But we're still trying to deal with reality at all moments. Mm. When we start fully manipulating this, we do end up creating a chaotic situation where, and I mean, these are themes of our age and the modern day that we live in right now oh, yeah. where people don't know what is truth. And people say something like post-truth and people say fake news all the time. And then if you can manipulate reality in this way, maybe the world we will live in in the future won't be very nice because the people in power, I don't think they care about the ordinary people. Uh-huh. But it is a, this is a highly complex relationship between my personal ideas of integrity and documentary and a wider scope of like of our um, possible future fascist world. Anyway, I don't to talk about being honest in terms of with gatekeepers and things like this. It's just you, you constantly have to lie under capitalism. (laughs) You have, (laughs) that's the best, that's the best sentence ever. (laughs) (laughs) You, you have a you, you it's it's but it's also such a strange thing because a yeah. lot of i hope i hope real film like you end up having these conversations with like audience members and then other filmmakers about like who is like a real director oh, who is yeah. like a real oh, filmmaker course, or something like course. this and then you hopefully like someone has poured their like fucking soul into this thing mm-hmm. but then you've also made a product that's right and it's it's, it's very strange i don't Right now, I'm developing like people around me who who like the films that I make that are the gatekeepers to me, so they will be the business people that will ex- execute the language that is required to right. make the commodity, which is like the films I will make in the future, right. something that is like completely fine to like the industry bodies. But I did find it like. It was also because also this thing, when I made Brexitania, I did, I mean, A City is an Island played like, I think, 12 festivals. I think I went to like five of them. It was super fun. But it was also obvious that like there wasn't any industry interest in my film and that my film was kind of there because that film festival had a music documentary curated section oh, and right, right. maybe, and this was, and, and, and it became a part of that part of the festival industry. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't have a say, I didn't have a sales agent, so I wasn't making any money off that. I was lucky enough to most of those festivals were nice guys who offered hotels and flights. So this was fine, but it's still perpetually feeling like a, a very, very little fish in a big pond. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then I made Brexitania and I think I earned a bit of respect from this. But man, it's just like, like, I also, I feel, I feel like I shouldn't even say this on this podcast. It's just like, and I'm not, this is, I'm talking mostly about doc film, but like when you get into narrative film, there's like, there's snakes everywhere, you know? 
and you you get in, you, like it's it's very very strange to um to have to deal with like the slipperiness of the business side. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just and it really um yeah because. And I can, I've got, it'd be funny, I've, there's like a producer that I'm working with right now who I talk to about this all the time right now. And if he could hear me through the wall, he would probably be like saying, shut up, Tim, shut up. <laughs> You're not because supposed like, to it's some say kind that, of like, man. Because like, it's like, you know, it's just, there's, it's very, 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 very strange. Yeah. Like, it's not, it's not, um, it's just, these people, these people, some of these people that are in control, it's not that they're in, it's just, they have a job to do and they have to pick out like a certain amount. They have to, and they have their, their notches they have to pick. Like I'm sure there's, I'm sure everyone wants a certain document. Every, every TV channel wants a certain doc about Trump this year. <laughs> right. um, maybe, maybe there's something, there'll be like an identity politics doc that has to be on every like TV channel in every region and the, these things that like, to, to, to get like shot, like you put a bit of your soul into this stuff and mm. to have it shopped around. Yeah. I mean, of course there would be older filmmakers like listening to my spiel about this, thinking how naive I am, but you know, like, like maybe it's nice to be naive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, like the, the realization, like the real, it's also this thing where like you, you kind of, you, you, you start like to use like, you're doing what you want to do and you're finally like finding some footing and autonomy financially. And then, yeah, it's, it's, it was like, it's very, very strange. Well, but I'm I sure mean, you'll edit this. It's, uh, well, I don't know, man. <laughs> I may just play this straight. <laughs> Here's the thing. You, you mentioned early on in the conversation that you feel like you're, you're getting to a place now as a filmmaker where you can see, okay, there's potential for sustainability here for myself as a filmmaker. And, and, yeah. and you had to be, well, I can't assume that I can't say that, but making a film like Brexitania, I would imagine you had to be, have been aware of, look, the timing couldn't be more perfect. It's one of the first about Brexit. You're chronically. Yeah, but you know, I fucking made it. I made it in black and white. And I made it in four three. Absolutely, we're going to get to that. We're absolutely going to get to that. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't like. I didn't make something. It. It. It's not. It hasn't been. I made these extremely strong creative decisions. Yes. That basically made it impossible for any TV like programmer to program the film because they won't go near anything in this way. There's also a shot in. Are it you that sure to- that that's happening? Like you must be reaching out, or someone's reaching out for you for TV programming. Yeah, are, are you saying, look, yeah. it's not happening for this film? Like it's not going to be seen on ITV. It's not going to be seen on Channel Four. It's not going to be seen on BBC. Fuck no. <laughs> because you're saying they won't touch it. You're sure of it. Yeah, I'm saying that because I know this. But the film, the film's almost. I mean, I this film was made super far. Right. It was also made, it was almost made too fast. Mm. I would actually argue it was made too fast. Like a lot of, a lot of um, people were like, what the fuck? How did this happen? Because it, it came out eight months after Brexit, after the Brexit vote. That's pretty, that's pretty Like I started, I, yeah. start, I started shooting <laughs> a week after. I started shooting a week after. And then oh. the film came out at CPH Docs, which was like eight months. And then the thing is CPH Docs, which I love this. I love this festival, and they've always been super supportive of me. And yeah. they're also like huge, 
like in terms of what that how that festival has evolved in like even just like the last five years oh, yeah. very very cool festival oh yeah but but like i was i'm an unknown director and then there's this, this fully random sounding like brexit documentary mm-hmm. so like the film wasn't that well attended there and what what we wow. like i mean it wasn't well attended in terms of like there was hype because no one knew who the fuck we were yeah yeah because it's also it's it's an australian director with a russian production company i was gonna ask you about that (laughs) yeah because i do i do i do um like i have a lot of russian friends Mm. um and my music video and music music film documentary stuff somehow resulted in me being like i do branded music documentary things like i did stuff for boiler room I just did something for Nike. I've right. done something for Adidas in the past yeah, Adidas, for this production company, Stereo, Stereo Tactic, which I do work for, which are a very, very fucking cool production company mm. that also do lots of commercial things but aren't all about profit. So they, Brexitania, they threw, they threw a, few, a few thousand euros yeah. at Brexitania to get the post through. Yeah with asking nothing in return apart from a logo at the front of the movie. Wow, you know? wow, wow, wow. Okay, okay. Like, the rest of the rest of Brexitania was just me driving a fucking car around and trying to find people with um, okay. my fixes. 2016 was a year that... that will go down in history as the year that, yet again, the British destroyed the European Union. 2016 was a year that finally the people got what they wanted. And 2016 was a year that will go down in history as the biggest democratic vote the UK's ever undertaken. You heard a lot talk about globalisation. People are sick of being told what to do by the EU. Voting leave. Everyone looks at the British and how would they solve this problem? I voted very much to remain. to be this great nation that we have. Immigrants cannot be proud, proud of something that you haven't Remain done. voters are smarter than leave. Well, it's 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 project in a democratic society, everybody becomes an expert. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I have to say, you know, for my audience that I feel like in some ways, I don't want people to get the wrong impression, which is that in some ways I feel like if if I had not seen this film, the way you have described it, Almost sounds ragtag, bare bones, quickly put together. No, the movie's great. <laughs> let, let, let's back up a little bit here and I mean, talk I'm about. Proud of the, I'm, yeah. prou- I'm, prou- I'm proud of the film. Yeah, I'm yeah, super yeah. Super proud of the film. I think. It, I also think like I wish people would take conceptual ideas yeah. of like what how you can make a documentary yeah. and do it about like massively political things like this because it also might engage people in thinking that like politics aren't boring and that documentaries aren't boring. Damn right. Oh yeah. Like oh, yeah. not all documentaries have to look the same. Like yeah. it's, it's very, it's very strange. We can do whatever we like and everyone does the exact same thing. <laughs> right. Well, I want to talk to you about your decision and this is going to seem like a basic question given the, given what we've already talked about, but I do want to back up 
and I want to talk because it's very striking to me, right? And I, it would be to anyone who sees this film, the decision to go black and white. It, I want to understand what the thought process is here and why you did this. There's, and yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not, it's a basic question. It's a, it's an important question though, because it's like, it's probably the only question that gets asked at every Q and A. Yeah, I, I, and I'm, I am embarrassed about that, but I, but I have to ask as a filmmaker and because no, of, of course, my audience. Of course, you know. no, 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 it makes complete, it makes complete sense because totally. it's also, I mean, it's, it's, it's not like it's, it's, it's not like I have a camera that only shoots black and white. <laughs> right, right, right. It wasn't exactly. like an economic I only had decision. a pixel vision um, on me. <laughs> a, a li- it was a little bit. It was. I'll tell you a little bit technically about. There is, there is also maybe an economic reason for it too. Yeah, please, um, please. But the first reason, first and foremost, I knew I was shooting it from black and white in black and white from the very beginning yeah. because of, I think, the polarizing nature of what referend, referenda yeah. as the correct plural is, right. what referendums, as I would like to prefer to say it, yeah. what, um, what referendums do to society is incredibly... Um, brutal in terms of how it can polarize a, a society and this very much happens with brexit mm. so that's why i chose black and white in mm. terms of just playing around with like this, this polarization mm-hmm. i'm also i'm also being a bit playful with the naturally negotiated signifier that something in black and white means it might be in the past which is playing with ideas of nostalgia which mm. i believe quite a few people that voted for <laughs> that referendum did have and right. um, there's also a now this this I only realized was going to happen when I was grading it. Yeah, because the film came out so quickly, and because I think the age, I guess the age which we will call like, which is more commonly called like the end of history, like this Fukuyama thing, like after the Soviet Union fell apart, and then we just had like liberalized capitalism for a really long time. Mm. And like everything in the West felt like kind of peaceful. And then the migrant crisis, the growth of the rights in Europe, and then Brexit and Trump signify some kind of break right. in the end of history. Right. I think, I think that we've, we're, we're, we're very much at a different, a different time now that we have entered and maybe we're actually in it for quite a lot longer than we thought. And mm. Brexit and Trump are actually just the, the first big signs. Oh dear. Um, Especially with Brexit, when I was walking around talking to people all over the UK, I felt like a lot of people did not realize that they were actually in a historic moment Mm. because the ideological feeling of when you were a part of the end of history, which is what we're all are from like the 90s onwards, is that kind of history doesn't happen anymore. Like you just have another world cup and then like the Olympics happen and then like the presidents and the prime ministers change, but nothing really, really big is going to happen in these ways. And, you know, to, to, to sound super cynical, the wars happen, but they're really, really far away. And we don't have real wars in like our, you know, where the rich white people live predominantly, but there's something very strange, especially for a British audience, especially in a cinema when they watch this film there's a bit like so like so like right now oh, like man. use like what something that feels like in like in, in a valley girl like internet term like it's like <laughs> it's so right now but it's in black and white and it it does this really 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 peculiar thing to the to the individual inside the audience and collectively in the audience in terms of how it makes them feel when you see this movie 
especially in the UK. Oh. And this, this like, it's it's like deterritorial, like they're being deterritorialized by like space and time in a way that kind of fucks with the audience, right? In in, in what I think is a very interesting way, and what means that like you can't walk, you're not going to walk out of the you're walking out of the movie definitely thinking like a complex series of things, because this is what the film is also about. Like the film is a, trying to do a portraiture of like complexity in some way, shape, or form, and then. Yeah, it's, it, it was that for that reason in like this, this I found super, super interesting because also a lot of audiences did agree that this is how it made them feel. Yeah. And then to make a joke, not a joke, a very, very truthful thing about um, I didn't have a camera that could only shoot black and white, but I did not have any money. And the camera I owned personally, which I think is a piece of shit, I knew... I could shoot spectacularly well on this camera because I was a DOP too. Yeah. Um, I knew I could shoot it really, really well if it was only, if I didn't have to deal with um, RGB space and I only yeah. had to deal with um, black, black and white. Right. Because I, I, shot, I shot it on a GH4 without any assistance, without any artificial light. And um, I mean, the GH4 as a camera, especially considering what it costs, especially yeah. considering what, technology used to be like 10 years ago is yeah. an amazing camera yeah. but in terms of like putting things up on a cinema screen mm. like and also like i'm i have a good eye as a cameraman but like i wouldn't be hiring me as a cameraman on like a, a 500,000 pound documentary at all mm. i'd be getting someone else mm. so there was i also was able to just shoot with more confidence knowing right. that the whole film was going to be black and white because I had that camera. So you've got a great idea for a documentary film. Awesome. I'd love to hear about it, but I don't have a ton of time. Can you tell me about it in 30 seconds or less? Oh, you don't quite have your pitch down yet. Okay, that's fine. What's your website where I can find more information? Maybe a press kit I can take a look at. You don't have one. Well, have you thought about how you might raise some funds to help with the costs of making films? They can be expensive, right? You haven't. Okay, maybe just tell me about your audience. Who's going to want to see your film? Who will you be marketing it to? You don't know this either. Okay, then I'm going to assume you haven't thought about how you'll be getting your film out into the world then, right? I think I see what's going on here. I was once in your shoes. A great idea for a doc. Camera in one hand, a boom mic in the other. But other than that, not much other than a whole lot of excitement and gumption. And that's great. You'll need all of that. But you'll also need a heck of a lot more if you're looking to make the kind of documentary film that you can be proud of. The kind that people will want to see and will impact them. The kind that won't break the bank while you're making it. And dare I say, you might even make some money from. You need support, and we've got you covered. We built the Documentary Academy with you in mind. We've got all the resources you need to make a successful documentary film you can be proud of. Come and enroll at thedocumentarylife.com academy, and let's turn that doc idea into a reality. How much testing did you do to see how it was going to come out black and white? Well, I, we would... I, I would... When we were editing, I would often not not with correct just so it was I think um I think editing is an emotive process. So I I'm not the kind of person I will have like 
especially if the film's going to be in black and white, we would we would be editing, 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 and we would have just like just take all the saturation out so you could at least see and then up the contrast a right. little bit, even when we're editing, so that you can feel uh, a little bit like what it's that going was to feel part like. Of the process, like, of course, ed- absolutely. Like is, uh, watching uh, editing, editing that in color, and then one day at the end of the whole post process, it being in black and white would have yeah. felt very strange. Got but it, it's just like you, you, you filmmakers, you should be, you don't just make things. You like, it's about, it's about like how things emotively feel. So I think not watching in black and white would be crazy. Well, I think, you know, I have certainly gleaned, uh, if nothing else from this conversation, um, that very much. What does the, gleaned mean? So I've gleaned from the conversation I've gathered, if you will, from the conversation. Okay. Um, I've gathered that, uh, the emotive aspect is uh, you're a very process-driven person. I am as well as a filmmaker. For me, a big part of it is, is yes, of course, there's the end product, if you will, but it's about the process. It's what I love. The actual filmmaking process is what I love most about it. The actual film at the end, yeah, half the time I'm like, eh, it's okay. Yeah, it's it's a film. I finished it. I did it. But the process of it, whether it's whether it's in post, whether it's in actually filming, whether I do a lot of work overseas in developing countries, I love engaging with other cultures. That's that's mm-hmm. a big part of the draw is that process of it. That's what filmmaking is for me in many ways. Um, I think I think that you're similar in that fashion and that it's very much. I disagree. <laughs> Great, even better. Let me hear it. <laughs> you hate the process? <laughs> no, I think no. I mean. Look, it's like so much of it is so much work. <laughs> right, it is, of course. Like work, like it's it's so hard, <laughs> like so much time. Over. <laughs> and then you something will happen. Hopefully, if you're lucky, every day yeah. that gives you a small glimmer of hope <laughs> that what you're doing is worthwhile. You can glean but, some hope from it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can glean some hope, but the thing is, like, I would go, I would, I would go through a nightmare process of absolute hell, like, yeah, if, if to to get to a like a very, 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 very good film, right. like, I, I think this is also like, um, something about my, like, I just directed a, a, a thing for, um, I won't say too many things. It was for a very, very big. <laughs> corporate brand in a foreign country and the shoot was an absolute nightmare mm, 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 mm. well that's because you had to play by somebody else's rules right no but the rule the rules the rules was complete absurdity it okay. was imagine if you had to do imagine if you had to do like you had to make a movie about like a dentist yeah and then it you find out that the that the dentist lied to the client and that the guy isn't even a dentist. Oh, wow. Okay. And the problem is then you have a production company that has this job and this budget that has to make this money out of this production. <laughs> and then you find out, you find out whilst making the film that the guy isn't a dentist anymore. Oh, God. And you're doing like, let's just, let's just say we're doing like a toothpaste commercial, <laughs> but there's obviously contractual like obligations that like, if like some like, you know, these chaos, like, massive disaster causes which could mean that the whole film gets like pulled apart like you'll just pulled away and then the production just dies right so then like i think the, the one thing that like i took from like like pas and stuff in terms of like what i dealt with i could have really 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 
I, I can't believe I'm calling this like the toothpaste project now, but like yeah. I could have really phoned in this toothpaste project. Yes. Like after this point, because it was truly, truly the most absurd, impossible situation to make a film about. Mm. It's like you have to make a film about blue and then suddenly the blue that never existed in the world anymore. <laughs> and then so it's just like the, the way that we like played with like these lies and the, like the, the extra effort I went to for this like bullshit mm. was and the amount of like I gave too much of my soul for yeah. these articles. I was going to say, what's that doing to your soul as an artist? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Like, I think it's like very, like, but it's also like, because it was a film and there was another opportunity to make something that was like very, very cool. Yeah, and yeah. then it was a client-based project. So then the client gets their hands on it and then you don't get to make the thing you wanted to make yeah. because that's the way that, that it works. But yeah, I, I think sometimes, I think even if the the thing the process is absolute hell. I will still push through and I will just constantly complain about my spine because my, um, for some reason it appears that stress accumulates uh, in my spine right. as a physical reaction. Yes. But it was luckily, it was luckily, um, in a country that has, um, sauna culture. So <laughs> I'm very much a fan of, I'm very much a fan of the banya and this, um, this helps me through the night. <laughs> Actually, I went to Manya this morning, so I'm feeling pretty good Good today. for you. Okay. You've really loosened up in this conversation. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I, you know, I, I, it's, a, it's a very strong part of me that just feels terrible to do this. Like to, to, it, just, it feels wrong to wrap this conversation up, but my editing is going to be hell on this if, if we keep going. Yeah, um, sorry. But the truth of the matter is this has been... I guess I had no idea what to expect talking with you. Um, maybe, uh, maybe I had an inkling after seeing Brexitania, but this is uh, this has gone in so many uh, delightful and unanticipated <laughs> directions, man. This has been amazing. <laughs> yeah, just like I, I, I talk like the, apparently because of the way I talk, I won't have a career in five years. So, like, yeah. thanks, good luck to me. There you go. I don't know. <laughs> So, Timothy, as we wrap up here on the documentary Life, how can my listeners see Brexitania? So, if you're in the UK, you can watch it right now on iTunes. Um, and everywhere else in the world, it will be available on iTunes on September 4th of this year. So, I guess if you're listening to the podcast as it comes out, it's in a couple of months. But please wait. Cool. The film will finally be out. Yeah, and I'll, and and of course we'll go ahead and get those links up on on the show notes for this episode, and uh, and of course once it's uh, once it's released worldwide on iTunes, we will update that information. So certainly come back to the show notes and uh, Timothy, man, what a pleasure! Thank you so much for agreeing to come on. And um, I know we can't give details. You're in an undisclosed location, if you will, currently working on on your new project. But uh, it sounds uh, as you and I have talked offline, it's it's even bigger in scope than uh, than brexitania let us just say that yeah my spine hurts already i eagerly await to see to see what, what you come up with on, on this particular topic uh thank yeah, you me so too. much man <laughs> you too right right exactly. all right, thanks, <laughs> all right have a great day thanks for being on the show man thanks Chris. all right <laughs> bye hey 
Hey, can I ask a quick favor? If you found this podcast helpful in living your doc life or making your doc film, will you help us share it with more people by giving us a stellar review on whichever platform you use to listen to this podcast? We'd really appreciate it. And you'll be helping the doc filmmaking community find us. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.